Well, today we're spending three weeks talking about meals at home, but that doesn't finish our challenge as a church. That's 120 days that we're challenging uh, all in our church to engage in family meals, uh, meals with friends, hospitality, trying to, to realize that Jesus meets us at the table and often changes us around those tables. So I hope this has already been an encouragement to you and you've seen blessing. I'm sure there's been some meals that have been disasters. That's happened at my house too. So it's okay, but we'll, uh, we'll keep with it, and I know God's going to do great things. Uh, and also, you've heard about, guess who's coming to dinner? Uh, please sign up for that. It'll be a great opportunity to get to know others in our church that you may not know yet. This morning, uh, I want to continue this series. The first week, we talked about uh, how the family meals have a power about them that can change the dynamics in families, put our kids on a right path, and really shape us as parents. Second week, last week, we talked about hospitality, that hospitality is not just receiving those who are like us in our homes and being warm. That's part of it. But it's really loving strangers, loving those who are outsiders in our midst and and including them in our tribe. And then the the third piece today, I want to talk about the power of the communion table. And that's why this is up here as an illustration in some ways. I'll get to this in a minute, this table, which has some significance. But let's pray together as we open God's Word. God, this morning we ask that you would help us to see the power of communion. Now we experience this each week, God, and many of us have experienced the power of uh, what the bread and the juice represent and what it means for us. But God, help us in, in some way just to see a new glimpse of that so that we might have a fresh look as week by week we continue to share in this feast that people have been doing for centuries. God, this morning I pray you'd pour through me the gift of preaching so that Christ would be formed in hearts. It's the name of Jesus that we pray. And everyone said, Amen. I want to start this morning by saying that I love to eat. Do I have any foodies out there that love to eat? Can I get an amen from anyone? All right. Now, you're going to get hungry here for a few minutes, but just bear with me, okay? One of the things I love is cinnamon rolls from Cinnabon, right? I mean, the icing on there, you warm that thing up, that's a good way to go. I love fajitas. In fact, I judge Mexican restaurants by their fajitas. And so one of my favorites is Chewy's just down the road. And some of you I know are, think you're better than this, but El Phoenix, I grew up going to El Phoenix. I love El Phoenix. And I hear outsiders who are like, El Phoenix, why would you choose that out of all the great Mexican restaurants? It's just one of our family things. So El Phoenix is one of our loves. I'm thinking about foods that I like. I love, um, I, if I'm going to go to Cheesecake Factory, I'm going to have a, a big plate because they serve big portions, but I'm going to have cheesecake after the meal because how do you leave Cheesecake Factory without the cheesecake. Or have you ever been to Logan's or, you know, Texas Roadhouse, those rolls that they have? And the butter that comes with them, I mean, you just put that on top. I mean, it's heavenly, right? There's something divine about that activity, about eating that. I think God gives us these gifts, but i got to tell you, the first part of this year, we've not been able to enjoy any of that. And the reason is, I'm 30 years old and got to start on an exercise and diet regimen and all that, Right? So this year we started out with some goals, and we stuck with them, which is really exciting. And we've seen some progress, but it means we've not been able to eat the things we love to eat sometimes. But we're learning new habits and enjoying vegetables or whatever, and, and, and you know, we're realizing that menus have salads and soups, and that can be good too. But I miss some of these things. And some of you are hungry already thinking about this, so i got to rush through the sermon so you can get to lunch, right? One of my favorite desserts is Reese's Peanut Butter Cups, right? I mean, peanut butter and chocolate. I mean, I just have these loves in my life, and they may be idols. I don't know. I try to put God first and thank Him for these gifts. 
But, you know, Holly and I are trying to stick to this plan. And one of the biggest hurdles to this plan of trying to do well this year has been Girl Scout cookies. I mean, put that on the screen. We've got to see this slide right here, right? I mean, just a reminder, we've got Girl Scout cookies. Tagalongs are my favorite. You know, I like peanut butter and chocolate. Or, you know, I like, uh, I like Thin Mints. Put those in the freezer and they, you know, they stay cold. I just, I love, and, and there's something wrong about the marketing plan of the Girl Scouts because everyone's trying to start their diet off well at the beginning of the year, but then it just gets killed in a moment when the Girl Scout cookies come in. They're selling them. and the, I have nothing wrong with selling cookies in the church, right? I mean, I don't think God's against that. I'm not going to bring out a whip. But you're causing a brother to stumble this year, okay? I mean, we bought one for our kids and trying to keep those in the freezer and wait, you know, I just it's hard to do. And it's interesting what God has to say about food and actually some rules that he sets out for food. In the Old Testament, there's lots of laws about food and commandments. In fact, bacon is not something that they could eat, which to me sounds godless, right? I mean, what kind of God says you can't eat bacon or shrimp? There are also other rules. You, you can't boil a kid in its mother's milk, which I'm going, I've never tried that, but that's another interesting Well, There's these strange rules about eating in the Old Testament. Well, you come to the New Testament, there's good news because bacon's okay again. Can I get applause on that one, right? But there's still laws. There's regulations about how we eat. In fact, in, in Acts chapter 15, there's this conference. The Jews and the Gentiles are trying to learn to get along. And they're struggling to get along at tables. Because when they come to the table, they have different regulations. And in Acts 15, they decide, hey, they don't have to do everything. They, they, they can't be caught up in sexual immorality. But there's some other rules about how they eat with one another that if you're going to have the unity of the body, you've got to learn to eat in a way that you can come to the table together. Because sometimes the best barriers that we have, or the, maybe I should say, that's, not a, that's, not a, that's, that's an oxymoron, right? Sometimes the barriers we have that are bad in our lives, they can be overcome if we find ourselves around tables. You've had this experience, right? To share a meal with someone who is an enemy or you begin to pray for them and care for them and something can change in that encounter. Do you remember the first command that comes in Scripture about eating? It comes in the second chapter of the entire Bible. Genesis chapter 2. If you have your Bibles, open to Genesis 2. I want to read this command and kind of look at what, uh, what God has to say to Adam and Eve in the garden. So it's Genesis 2 verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. Now when you're told that you can't eat something, what is it that you want to eat? Whatever that something is, right? I tell you, don't think about a pink elephant. What are you thinking about? A pink elephant, right? I mean, it's like God's drawing attention at the center of the garden. All these things are good. They can eat it. But here's the one tree that can't be eaten. And, and I don't know about you, but the way I live, I mean, when someone tells me I can't have something, I want it. And I think that's something about our humanity, about the way we're built, that we, we, we want what we can't have. And we see that story in Genesis 3, right? We see the story of Adam and Eve taking on what they shouldn't have. And it's a struggle for all of us. And so I want to read on in Genesis 3 the story that continues with this law that's been given, but how humans respond. It's Genesis 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden. But God did say you must not eat from the tree that is in the middle of the garden. 
and you must not touch it or you will die. Which, by the way, if you look back in chapter 2, he never said you couldn't touch it. But that's interesting how we sometimes hear God's word and say it in a different way. When the woman saw the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some of it and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. And then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. So what happens when they eat the forbidden fruit? Their eyes are opened and they know something they didn't know before. That's what God warns them about. You'll have a knowledge of good and evil. They don't die in this moment, but something within them dies, doesn't it? Something, some, something of their innocence dies in this moment. And this verb, know, is an important term in Scripture. It shows up all kinds of places in the Old Testament. It has all kinds of connotations. But I think we know something about this verb, know, don't we? Because when you wander into sin, when you wander outside God's boundaries, all of a sudden you come to knowledge that you didn't have before. And sometimes that knowledge you'd rather not have When you grow older and you realize, boy, I've tasted of things that were not what I was supposed to taste of. Because this is how sin works, right? Sin, if you're doing it right, it feels good at first, right? It brings comfort of some kind to us. There's some kind of pleasure or comfort that's found in sin. But over time, if we're not careful, we come to know that pleasure or that comfort. But if we're not careful, what we don't know on the other side of that can be addictions, can be problems, can be brokenness in ways that if we we do things in God's timetable, in his measure, it works out. But if we do things outside of those boundaries, all of a sudden chaos results. And that's what happens here in Genesis chapter 3, is chaos begins to be unleashed in the world. How do I say this with those who are younger in the room? I mean, some of us have been a part of relationships. That we've come to know feelings, come to know emotions. We've come to know pleasure or some kind of comfort in a sin in a relationship. And when we come to know that kind of feeling... All of a sudden, if you have a breakup in a relationship or or a divorce, you've been through a divorce, then you know things that you come on the other side of it and there's an aloneness that you feel that you've known something of companionship. You've known something of, of pleasure or comfort. And when you step outside of that to the other side, whether that's by your own choice or by the death of a loved one, all of a sudden living life on the other side of the knowledge of something that was good becomes very difficult, doesn't it? So sometimes there's this knowledge that we don't want to have. And this is why God sets up boundaries for us when it comes to sexual purity. Is to, if we don't know about that kind of pleasure, then it's easier to stay away from it. But once you know it, to stay within the boundaries of what God guides us to is a very difficult thing. And we don't know the power that this can have in our lives over us. And that's what happens to Adam and Eve. They come to know certain things when they sin. They come to know. They have a power, a knowledge of good and evil now. But it's something they'd rather not have in some cases, Right? Now they're not as innocent as they once were. And this is the hardest part of the consequences of the fall. I don't believe the hardest part of the fall happens when they have pain in childbirth, which I know I I shouldn't say that, women, right? Some of you are ready to say, you don't know that kind of pain, right? I don't think the greatest consequence is that men now have to work the soil, and now there's thorns and thistles. The greatest consequence of the fall is that they have known life in the garden, and now they're not going to know life as it once was. Like to know something and to know the good about it and then no longer to be a part of it, that is one of the hardest feelings in life, isn't it? 
Some of us, you've experienced that in different ways. It's a knowledge, and that's what they come to know, and it's where death kind of comes into the world is a knowledge of things that we can no longer know. And I think when sin enters into our lives, often it's because we have some kind of sense about a connection with God, a wholeness with God that we may have known at birth or before birth. I don't know how all this works together, but I know there's this longing we have to be fulfilled in some way. And when we sin, we're trying to tap into that feeling. We're trying to tap into what we know is our wholeness. But what we find is that sin never fulfills us in the ways we thought it would. That often it turns to destruction and chaos that sometimes get out of control in ways we never would have imagined. See, the restlessness in all of our hearts, I believe, goes back to Eden. It goes back to the sense of being whole with God, of being whole with one another in his creation. And now we live in a world where that's no longer the case. We sense the brokenness and the restlessness within ourselves. All of us exhibit it in different ways. And one of the places that we see the wholeness of God, experience and tap into that, I think happens around tables. I mean, think about the language we use around meals from time to time, right? You ever use this language? Like you eat something that was so good and you say, that, that was heavenly, right? Or, or that pie was divine. Like we use this kind of celestial or spiritual language to talk about encounters with food, which is interesting, right? But here's what I believe. I believe that God is present at every table where he is welcomed. And we see that in Genesis chapter 18, a few chapters later. Here's a meal that goes a little bit differently. Genesis 18 verse 1. This is Abram and Sarai that have some visitors. It says there, The Lord appeared to Abraham near the great trees of Mamre while he was sitting at the entrance to his tent in the heat of the day. And Abraham looked up and saw three men standing nearby. When he saw them, he hurried from the entrance of his tent to meet them and bowed low to the ground. Now, the narrator kind of lets us in on things from the beginning. It's the Lord who's present in this encounter with Abraham and Sarah. But what does Abraham see? He sees three men who are standing there. And I think often we come around tables and we don't realize that God is the host at so many of our tables if we allow him to be. But Sometimes all we see are the three people around our table. But God's there too. And that's what we see in Genesis 18. That any place where God is welcome, any table God is welcome to, he's going to be present at. And we see this throughout Scripture in incredible ways. And I think that's the reason that we pray at the tables that we sit at. We thank God for the food. What we're trying to do is say, God, you're welcome here. We we, we in some way anoint this space. We allow it to be sacred space for a season because we believe you'll meet us here. This is what I love about Jesus is he loves to eat too. He would have loved Cinnabon cinnamon rolls. I mean, he eats all the way through the Gospels. The only breaks in his tables are, are, are sermons or miracles that he does for people. I mean, he's always eating. And when he talks about the kingdom of God, how does he describe it? So this is like yeast that's worked into dough, doesn't he? Or he says, I'm the bread of life. That's how he describes himself. Or, or he tells parables about banquets. He says, hey, you know, he talks about inviting all those to the banquet, and those didn't come, so invite others so that they can be at the table as well. God loves to eat. He loves food. He's given it as a gift to us. But the story I want to focus in on today comes from another table. Another table that Jesus is at, but it's a surprising story. It happens actually the night of the resurrection. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Luke chapter 24. Luke 24, there's these two disciples who were on a road. You've probably read this story before, the road to Emmaus story. It's a great story. I want to read some of that to you today. So again, this is the night of the, res- of the resurrection. Jesus is, has died. He's been in the tomb. 
There's been reports about you know, women who've seen some angels and they didn't find the body. And, and, and this is what we find that same night. Now that same day, this is verse 13. That same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. And he asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? So you get the scene, like imagining this scene, right? These two disciples, they, they've heard Jesus has died. I'm, I'm sure they're going back to their old life. Maybe they're from Emmaus. Who knows the story? But I'm just imagining that they're kind of going back. Well, Jesus wasn't who he said he was. Let's kind of go back. And they're talking about the events that have happened over the last few days. Well, let's keep reading. Jesus is there in their presence, but they don't see him. They don't know him. Uh, verse 18. One of them named Cleopas asked him, this stranger, Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have already happened here in these days? So Jesus asked the question, what are you discussing? And they're like, what's anybody discussing right now? Jesus, you've heard about him, right? You've been in Jerusalem. We're on the road from Jerusalem to Emmaus. Surely you know about this guy. And Jesus is like, tell me about him, you know. I don't know who he is. Interesting encounter. Let's keep reading, okay? Uh, Verse 19. What things, he asked. He plays dumb. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They, they went to the tomb early this morning but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had see, seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see Jesus. He said to them, how foolish you are, and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? I love this scene. I love this story. Because here they are, and they're telling Jesus the gospel. This is the good news. Later in the book of Acts, people are going to say the same story, and others are going to come to believe and be baptized and follow Jesus. But they tell this story, talking about the resurrection, but not really sure what happened, right? They, they've lost hope. I mean, look at verse 21 again here. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. They had this hope. They were following them. They were putting all their chips in on Jesus, saying, this is the Messiah. And what happens? He dies. They've lost hope. We had hoped this would happen. I wonder, some of us this morning, if maybe we've gotten to that place. Maybe we've lost hope. Yeah, we know the story. We can recount it. But we had hoped this Jesus was who he said he was. But it's hard to believe that in the moments of life we find ourselves in. But then this stranger shows up on the road and, and he challenges their interpretation. He says, how do you not see this? Let's keep reading. In verse 27. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Wouldn't you have loved to have been there? Think about that. That's unbelievable. Like Jesus is saying, haven't you been paying attention to Scripture? Like look at Exodus. Look at the story of Moses. And then you realize with the prophets that they were talking about me. All along, this has been about pointing toward me and redeeming everything. And how could you have left Jerusalem not knowing? This is all in plan. This is all how it was supposed to go. God had this plan from the very, I would have loved to have seen Jesus do that. They don't even know who he is then. It takes even more for them to see it. Verse 28. 
As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if they were going further. But they urged him strongly, stay with us, for it is nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. Now they're living out hospitality like we talked about last week, right? Inviting the stranger in. And then the table shows up. It's fascinating what happens. These are some of my favorite verses of Scripture. Pay close attention to 30 to 32. When he was at the table with them, he took bread. He gave thanks. He broke it and began to give it to them. And then their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? Do you notice where they recognized Jesus? They recognized him at the table. And what was he doing there? He took the bread. He gave thanks. He broke it. And he gave it to them. And if you're paying attention to the gospels at all at this point, other stories start flooding into your mind. Your dashboard starts blinking because this language of he gave thanks, he took the bread, he gave thanks, he broke it, he gave it to them. This shows up other places in Luke's gospel. Think about it. Let's go back to, uh, let's see, Luke chapter 9. Now just imagine these these disciples, while you're flipping over to Luke chapter 9, these disciples, these two disciples, we don't know their names, we know Cleopas, we don't know the other one. We're not sure who they are, but if they're disciples, followers of Jesus, my guess is they've been following Jesus for a while now. They're not one of the 12, it doesn't seem, but, 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 but they've been following Jesus. And I have to imagine 5,000 people being fed by, maybe, I'm just wondering if these disciples were there in Luke chapter 9 when he feeds the 5,000. And let's just look at how it, the text describes this scene. Luke 9, verse 16. Taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to get heaven, he gave thanks and broke them. And then he gave them to the disciples to distribute to the people. You notice the detail? He took the bread, he gave thanks, he broke it, and he gave it to them. Now, I don't know who was present at the Last Supper. But, I mean, we know the twelve are there, but it, Scripture doesn't say if there's more there or not exactly. Probably a pretty private occasion, that's how I imagine it, but I don't know. But I'm just wondering, these disciples were in Jerusalem during this time. They're on their way to Emmaus. Could they have been at the Last Supper? Because I'm just thinking back to the Last Supper in Luke twenty two nineteen, 19. And, and how does it describe Jesus at the table? And he took the bread, he gave thanks, broke it, to, broke it and gave it to them saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of of me. The details are there again. He takes the bread, he gives thanks, he breaks it, and he gives it to them. Now these disciples probably should have picked up on Jesus before the table, right? I mean, they'd spent some time with him. Maybe there's something about his resurrected body that looks different. We don't know how they were kept from recognizing him. And then he explains the scriptures to him and says, how did you not see this? Wouldn't they pick up that maybe this is Jesus? But it's not till they get to the table. And he takes the bread And he gives thanks, and he breaks it, and he gives it to them, that all of a sudden their eyes are open. And I just have to think, these are people who've been at table with Jesus before. These are people that had seen him be a host at the table before. So when he breaks the bread in their midst, in their homes, all of a sudden they recognize it because they've seen Jesus' as host before. And their eyes are open. And that language of eyes being open, is that not setting off alarms from something we read earlier? Genesis 3. Remember, they, they take the fruit and they eat. And what happened? What does the text say? Their eyes were opened. That's a different kind of opening of eyes, right? Their eyes are open now to a knowledge of, of good and evil. Their eyes are now open to the brokenness in the world, the brokenness in themselves. You know the cool part about this story in Luke 24? 
Luke 24 is the undoing of Genesis 3. Actually, it actually happens at the resurrection, but, but it's like their eyes are being opened. Their eyes were open first in Genesis 3 to see the brokenness of the world, but now, through the broken bread that Jesus gives to them, now their eyes are open to see a new world that's on its way. That new creation is breaking forth, that the old is gone, that the new has come, that you can be a new creation through the Holy Spirit that has changed you. And this table, this, this story comes alive. Luke's trying to to alert us to some things here, to say when you get around tables and when you break bread together, all of a sudden Christ can be in your midst in a way you would have never seen it before. I think it's time for us to reclaim the table, isn't it, church? Not just communion table. That's part of this, right? We need this to be the central focus of where we are. We're trying to search and seek out ways we can make this more central to our experience. But this is also the tables that we find ourselves around. Jesus doesn't just show up as host here in church on Sunday morning. Anywhere he's invited to your table, he's going to show up. And I love this story because it opens my eyes to see this fact. And you know what they do after this? They don't just go, well, that's cool. We saw Jesus. Would you stay here? They go back to Jerusalem and they tell everybody else about it. And they're like, you won't believe it. Peter already saw Jesus too. They get this great excitement and joy that they've all seen this encounter with the risen Christ, that everything has changed, that their eyes have been opened because he broke the bread in their presence. And that's the power of meals at home. I don't know where your family is right now. I know we've got families that are in different places, and some of it's sin that's broken in holes in your family. But what I want to invite you to do, whatever brokenness you sense right now, is I want to invite you to the table. I want to invite you to try again around the table. Because in the same way your eyes might have been open to the brokenness in your world, like Genesis 3 shows, the table can open your eyes to a new reality It can save marriages. It can save families. It can bring brothers and sisters that have been separated from one another if you'll surround yourself at the table. Because Jesus just tends to show up here. Last week, Greg Pirtle and I got an email from Curtis Williams. Curtis is a member of this church, and he he said I would be free to share this story. He he was, uh, his, his wife, Karen, had, had gotten a, a table for Christmas on Craigslist just to cheap buy and was hoping he'd remodel it for their table. Their table of four, they have five now, and so they weren't eating around their table because it was too small. And so she got this table, and there was his project for the year ahead. So he starts, you know, doing all this work to refinish the table. And, and this is his quote that he sent to us in the email. So the other day, uh, he was wor- working on the table and thinking to himself, and he said, here's his quote. Here I am spending my time refinishing a stinking table. Nothing meaningful or significant, just day-to-day tasks. But then he goes on to say, but after your sermon on meals at home, all of a sudden I realized that this wasn't just a table. This was going to be a memory holder for years to come for our kids. All of a sudden it redeemed this task. It was just a function that I was supposed to do for my wife to make her happy, and it became a task of the kingdom. All of a sudden, it became a place to open eyes. In fact, this is the table that Curtis has been working on. And I wanted this as an illustration here this morning to remind all of us that where you find yourself in your life right now might be an openness, a knowledge of sin that's open, or your, your brokenness involved in your lives. But this table has the power to transform all of us. 
It has the, the, the power to transform relationships. And, and so often, if we're at each other's throats in other places, we're not going to find ourselves here. Because it's tough to look right across the table from one another. But it's time that we get back to the table together. Curtis is finding new life in this. And, and here's what I'm, I'm trying to say is, Curtis was once a, a, a minister full-time in churches. And when you step out of that, sometimes your identity is so caught up in that that you don't know what you are once you're not a preacher. Some of you who've been preachers and are now out of that work, you, we get caught up in this. And we can do this in any line of work, can't we? What do you do? I'm a, I'm a plumber. Well, you're more than a plumber, right? Or you're more than an attorney. Or you're, our identity's bigger than our job. But sometimes we, 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 we work in our jobs and we do these secular tasks. And we've been told at some point in our lives we get this idea that if you're not a full-time minister of the gospel, then your job is just to make money to then uh, you know, help the church do the task. Because you're not doing work, you're doing secular work. And the professionals on stage, let them do it. And I'm here to tell you that is just bogus. It's just wrong. And that's what Curtis discovered when he was doing this table was, if you're a woodworker and you're working on tables, you know what you're doing? You're setting a place for families to come together and be transformed. If you're a writer or a web developer, you're not just putting words on a page for people to read. You're trying to support in some way a mission, a ministry, something out there. If you're an attorney, you can do that for Jesus. You don't have to become a full-time In fact, I would beg you not to become a full-time minister. Now, some of us need to become that. Some of us who are growing up, you may be go on to become ministers. That's great. We need more of them, but we need more disciples in every profession who don't see their task as just another thing to do to make money for the church or to pay the bills and put food on the table, but who see it as a kingdom task. And it doesn't matter what your gift is, whatever secular that you may have never seen is redeemed. It can be redeemed if you see it through the light of Jesus. That's what Curtis saw with his tables. This was just a task to get done until all of a sudden his eyes were open. And if we could have our eyes opened again, I wonder what was your first love to get you into the profession you're in right now? Why was it that you first went into that? And what might you be able to do through that, through the gifts that you have to bless the kingdom of God? In what ways do your co-workers who know you, do they see Jesus in you on a daily basis when you're going about your normal tasks? Maybe tomorrow you're ready to quit your job because you think it has no purpose. Maybe you need to do that, but maybe you need to rethink that. Maybe you need to have your eyes opened again to see what your job might have to do with God's kingdom. I hope you're getting the power of this, that if we have eyes to see these tables, you know, just bread being broken, all of a sudden they see a Savior who's alive. All of a sudden they see the resurrection of Jesus, and God's resurrection is still alive and changing lives today. And this is good news. I love this story. I love the fact that tables aren't just tables and meals aren't just meals, that, that we have gifts and God wants to use them. So I want you to ask you this week to think about that. What are the gifts God's given you? What's the job God's given to you? And how in the world does that have anything to do with the kingdom of God? Because I think it has everything to do with the kingdom of God. And it might not be the task. It might just be the people that God puts in front of you. It might just be the manager that you have a hard time dealing with. Those may be the very people who need to see the kingdom of God, and you're his representative and his ambassador. Let's close uh, this morning with a word of prayer. God, I thank you for tables like this one that are changing families' lives over the last few weeks and the, and the weeks to come. I thank you for restaurant waiters and managers who go long hours, God, 
and sometimes wonder what they're doing, but what they're doing is setting the table for people to have a life-changing encounter if Jesus would step into it. I thank you for medical professionals, God, who show hospitality to strangers. I thank you for work-at-home moms who raise their kids and think maybe this is not worth anything in the end. But God, there's others in the room that could tell them that it made a lot of difference. I thank you for moms who go to work, show the kingdom in ways. And God, help us not feel guilty for stepping into your kingdom with the gifts you've given. Help us to see the ways that you want to use that for the kingdom. So God, whatever our roles are, whatever it looks like tomorrow or Tuesday, if the snow and sleet come, we just ask, God, that you would use us and open our eyes in ways that are not open currently. And God, I pray over every single table that is owned by the people of this church. I pray that those dinner tables would be places where broken families would come back together and mend. I pray that tables would be places where brothers and sisters that can't agree would learn to get together and they would share in the bread and the wine. They'd be reminded that it's Jesus that holds us together, not our opinions on every matter. God, this morning, would you give us a vision of your kingdom? I pray this in the powerful name of Jesus and your Holy Spirit, God, who moves still today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Be standing now for our benediction.